It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, September 10th, 2022. I'm Ryan Schmelz. It's the end of a 70-year era as Queen Elizabeth II passes away at the age of 96. As the world remembers the United Kingdom's longest-serving monarch, what is her legacy? And what does the changing of the guard mean for the U.S. as our closest ally welcomes its new prime minister? She was basically the leader of the free world for 70 years. And, uh, you know, we owe her, I think, an immense debt of gratitude. I'm Jared Halper. Congress is again trying to beat the clock before the sprint to Election Day. Shaking hands with people and all that, there is no substitute for that campaigning just days before an election. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Seventy years and 214 days. That's the length of Queen Elizabeth II's reign. It's the longest of any British monarch and the second longest reign of any monarch of sovereign states ever recorded in history. As the world grieves her death, people are also reflecting on her life, legacy, and the future of the UK. Uh, I have to say that uh, the Queen uh, was a hugely impressive figure and a figure of, I think, tremendous warmth, uh, kindness, compassion. Niall Gardner is the director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation and served as an aide to former UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. He shares with us how he thinks the Queen should be remembered and what's next for his home country. Uh, and uh, she was she was somebody who really embodied, I think, the you know the greatness of the British uh, the British nation, the greatness of the British people, uh, and uh, she was you know basically the leader of the free world for seventy years. Uh, and, uh, you know, we owe her, I think, an immense debt of gratitude. Um, I did work, of course, for Lady Thatcher in her private office. Uh, and um, Lady Thatcher, when she was prime minister, uh, of course, uh, had a very close working relationship with uh, with the Queen. And um, despite what one may, you know, see from, uh, you know, the crown on Netflix, uh, Margaret Thatcher and the Queen actually got on very, very well. They had a very, very strong partnership. Uh, they uh, they worked very closely together. Uh, and at the time in the 1980s, I mean, they were the two most powerful women in the world. Uh, and La- Lady Thatcher, uh, whom I worked for at a later stage, um, had great admiration for the Queen and for the institution of the monarchy. The Queen, I think, greatly respected the fact that uh, Margaret Thatcher was the first woman prime minister and that she was a politician of tremendous uh, conviction, resolve, uh, and principle. And I think she, she very much respect, respected that and admired it. Uh, Prince Philip, the, the husband of, of the Queen, hugely admired Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so I, I think there was, a, there was a far closer partnership between uh, Lady, Lady Thatcher and the Queen than one might gain from watching Hollywood-style depictions from, you know, from the likes of The Crown, for example. And what do you think the biggest thing those Hollywood depictions get wrong about their relationship? Well, they, they basically portray uh, a lot of tension, political tensions, disagreements over policy matters, 
uh, they also suggest that there was a huge sort of class difference between uh, Margaret Thatcher, who came from a more humble background, and uh, and the the upper class uh, you know background of the royal family. So you know they, they 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 try to portray all these these sort of sorts of tensions and so on, which I think simply did not exist. Yes, there were some uh, you know some policy. Uh, views that Lady Thatcher had that maybe the Queen did not fully support in every respect. But the reality is the Queen was not a political figure. She did not intervene politically. She played no role in day-to-day politics. But she actively, of course, engaged with the 14 prime ministers during her reign. Liz Truss is actually the 15th. Uh, And uh, the Queen took a very close interest in, in British political leadership, but she never actually weighed in on political matters. She did not see it as her role to intervene in, in politics in any way. And that, that is right, because you want to men- tra- maintain the, the neutrality of the monarchy. The monarchy should not be involved in, in party politics in, 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 any, in any way. It's not a political institution. Uh, and so there's a separation of powers between, uh, between the monarchy and, uh, and the, the British uh, elected government. And you mentioned her reign. We're talking about 70 years here. So the majority yes. of the population in the UK has lived their entire life with Queen Elizabeth as their monarch. You know, yeah. what has it been like for you watching the reaction in your home country and the world um, and seeing people flood the streets, uh, give out tributes and just and their reaction to, to her passing? There's just been this huge outpouring of, of grief, I think, uh, and sadness. Uh, but at the same time, I think the British people they cherish the memory of, of the queen and so they celebrate her life as well as mourning her uh, and uh, she as, as you pointed out the vast majority of britons have only known a life under the reign of the queen and the fact is now we have uh, a new king uh, king charles the uh, third and this is a new era it's the end of the the second elizabethan era uh, and the, the royal family the british monarchy begins a new chapter uh, and, you know, the British people, of course, I, I think, have high hopes for, for the new king. And clearly, uh, as we saw from Prince Charles's walkabout in front of Buckingham Palace uh, this morning, you know, Prince, Prince Charles, sorry, King Charles, I should say now, um, I, I think he will be he will be a popular uh, uh, king. It may be difficult to to achieve the same levels of popularity that the Queen achieved. But I, I do think the British people will warm to to the new king. Uh, and uh, and I think that uh, King Charles uh, also inherits a, a monarchy that is in a very strong position because the Queen left it in such a strong position, and the Queen was so hugely loved by by the British people, but also uh, across the world. In the United States, the Queen is is just massively popular, actually. Um, and and I think King Charles will want to you know further that that legacy in every every way possible and and i think he he's off to a very good start with his uh walk about in front of buckingham palace uh, meeting with hundreds of members of the public shaking their hands um and it's very good to see the, the king so uh you know in a way so relaxed and so at ease in uh, in in meeting with with the general public because he's going to be doing a lot of this uh, and of course he has a lot of experience of doing so uh, but he has huge shoes to fill, metaphorically, in terms of continuing the legacy of, of Queen Elizabeth II. And you've kind of touched on these next two questions here. But, you know, before we get into King Charles, you, what do you think the Queen's legacy is? The Queen's legacy, I think, is, a, is an incredibly strong monarchy. Um, it, it's, a, it's a monarchy that has uh, an approval rating in the UK of 70 to 80 percent. 
which is very important to have that public support there. In fact, I would say the monarchy right now is stronger than it has been at any stage in many, many decades. Uh, and uh, and that, that's a testament to the Queen's leadership. And the Queen really, she, her, her spirit of, of service, dedication, has built up this this tremendous loyalty among the British people to uh, to the House of Windsor in its modern form. You know, if you go back 40, 50, 60 years, many were predicting the end of the monarchy. You had the end of the British Empire, the 1950s and 1960s, when the Queen came to uh, came to power uh, in 1952. Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister. Uh, and 70 years on, the monarchy is actually just as strong today as it was when the Queen ascended to the throne in 52. So that, that's a testament to her leadership, actually, because in this modern era, so many royal families in Europe have declined and, and have fallen. Uh, the British monarchy is just as strong, and uh, you know it, it may be even stronger, actually, uh, 50 years from now. We, we simply cannot predict the future, but I think the monarchy is in very good hands with King Charles, and then when he is succeeded by, uh, by Prince William, who is a very, very well-loved uh, prince, I, I think that begins another new era and chapter for the royal family. And I, I think Prince William's family is such a shiny example of, of, of the greatness of Britain and, and the traditions of the monarchy. And, and I think uh, Prince William will be just such an outstanding king uh, and, and such a popular king as well. So I, I think the future of the monarchy is secure. Now, when you talk about Prince William, he will have to succeed the longest reigning or longest serving heir apparent after he takes over for the longest-serving monarch. What can we expect from King Charles? King Charles, I, I think, you know, his his overall uh, approach may be a bit a bit different from uh, from from the, the Queen. He's a very, of course, very low-key figure, uh, Prince Charles. But also, having having said that, he has been somebody who has intervened from time to time on political matters, despite having a personality that I, I would describe as quite uh, as quite low-key, but. He has weighed in on some political matters, environmental issues, immigration, for example, and he's actually been strongly condemned in the past for doing so by especially conservative MPs who have not been happy with what he said. Uh, and his recent intervention, for example, on immigration issues was was very poorly received by uh, by uh, members of the Conservative Party. Uh, Charles has pledged, or King Charles has pledged, not to intervene on political matters as king. Uh, and and I, I expect he will hold to that that promise because if you have a king who intervenes politically, that fundamentally changes the nature of the monarchy and will significantly undermine, I think, public trust in the monarchy if that happens. So uh, I, I think the the king uh, will not be intervening on political matters. He should not not do so. Uh, but Charles's style and demeanor and everything is very different to to that that of the queen. And um, he has also been somebody who has been uh, greatly overshadowed, of course, by his mother for, for so many uh, so many uh, decades. Now he is uh, in the, the lead position, huge weight on his shoulders, immense uh, weight on his, on his shoulders as the new king. Uh, and, uh, but I, I, think, I think Charles will do well as, as the new monarch and the new, new sovereign. And, and he's also, I, I think, a very, you know, at the end of the day, a very likable person uh, and, and also a man, I, I think, of a lot of humility as well, it has to be said. But when it comes to Charles, and you just mentioned the, the, the criticism he's received from the, the Conservative Party, well, the Conservative Party has a new PM taking over, and that's Liz Truss. Yeah. You know, what do you think their relationship can be like? And obviously, you've been very optimistic about her taking over here. Uh, what can we expect from her? 
Yeah, so uh, I think that uh, the new prime minister is going to have a, a very constructive, close working relationship with, with the king. Uh, and uh, Liz, Liz Truss is somebody who, who I think, as, as a former foreign secretary, as a former trade secretary, with a lot of political experience, you know, she, she will know how to, to work with, with the royal family very closely. Uh, and uh, she will be somebody who I, I think will be greatly respected as well by, by the royal family and by, by our new king. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a very, a very uh, productive, close, constructive uh, working uh, relationship. I think Liz Truss is the right person to lead Great Britain right now. Uh, she's a very strong, robust politician. She has a lot of political experience. She's a Thatcherite. She believes in the ideas and principles of Margaret Thatcher. I think that's what we need right now it, as Britain faces immense economic challenges and a big energy crisis. And so with the new prime minister coming in, as well as a new king, what does this changing of the guard mean, you think, for the United States? I think that for the, for the United States, the special relationship is going to continue to be very, uh, very strong. Uh, and I think the American people will, will warm to the new king. No doubt he will make a royal visit to the United States at some stage uh, early in his reign. I do think I do think King Charles is going to be popular with, with Americans, perhaps not quite at the same heights achieved by by uh, his mother, the uh, Queen Elizabeth II. But but I do think uh, Pr Prince Charles, King Charles will uh, will endear himself to the American people swiftly. In terms of the, the political situation with Liz Truss and Joe Biden, I have to say there, there are some tensions behind the scenes between London and Washington over a number of issues, mainly Brexit related and dealing with the Northern Ireland Protocol issue, which is a big priority for, uh, for, the, for the British government. And I think that Liz Truss is likely to be very assertive in her dealings with, uh, with the US president. I think she's going to stand up for the British national interest. Joe Biden, I have to say, has not been very helpful in terms of US-UK relations uh, with his frequent lectures towards the UK over, over the over the Northern Ireland issue, which hasn't been helpful at all. So I think Liz Truss is going to stand up to Joe Biden where needed, and she will basically tell him to mind his own business when it comes to, uh, you know, British uh, issues, actually. And and so I, I think she uh, she's going to be a lot tougher than Boris Johnson has been, who's been quite soft, actually, in his dealings with, with the Biden administration. But do you think they can, they can have a working relationship that benefits both sides? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because... The special relationship is bigger than any, uh, you know, single prime minister or, part, uh, or president, and and I, I'm sure that Liz Truss is going to develop a, you know, a strong working relationship with with the president. She may she will disagree with him on some important matters, and there will be tensions there, undoubtedly on Brexit related issues. Uh, and uh, but my, my advice to the you know to the U.S. president would be, uh, you know, to to work constructively with the new British government, and not to pick fights with with the U.K because that, that is the last thing we need, is, is a US president who you know, is, is fighting with, with a, US, a British uh, prime minister. So, uh, so I do hope that Joe Biden will, will have a constructive, productive, pragmatic relationship with Liz Truss, but there will be significant ideological differences there. And so for the last question I have for you is, you know, so, many, so much of the world is seeing this for the first time. They're seeing the spotlight put on the UK and and they're learning a lot about the UK from this but you know this is new for a lot of us and it, for for a lot of people they don't really understand this you know what do you think people in other countries need to know about this and and, and how do you explain it to somebody who might not under, understand you know why there's a, a reaction so strong like this to the death of a monarch yeah i, I think that um 
The British monarchy is unique, of course. It's the most powerful monarchy in the world. It has been for many centuries. There's, there's no royal family like the British royal family. Uh, and in fact, every other royal family in the world simply does not have the significance and the power of the British monarchy in terms of not only power within the United Kingdom, but also glo global uh, significance as well. Uh, and what happens with the royal family is followed all over the world. Um, large numbers of Americans, of course, have been tuning into their TVs to watch the, the news of the passing away of the Queen. So th there's this tremendous interest in the royal family across the world, fascination with the royal family. But there's no royal family that has the, you know, the global significance and reach of, of the British royal family. And so uh, with, with the passing of the, uh, of the Queen, uh, the, the Queen was such a uh, a hugely important figure in the hearts of the British people, uh, and so, so deeply loved, I think, by uh, by uh, by the vast majority of the British uh, population. And she has been just a part of, of the everyday lives of, of the British uh, of the British people. And so, with, with the passing of the Queen, it's an immensely sad moment. It's the end of an era, uh, and I think. Most British people simply cannot imagine a world without the Queen there. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I can't imagine myself a world without the Queen, frankly. Uh, but, you know, life continues for the, the British nation. Uh, it's the new era with King Charles. We wish him all the very best. We will always cherish and remember forever uh, the, 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 the leadership of, of Queen Elizabeth II. She is imprinted upon our hearts, and that will never go away. Now, Gardner, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Congress is on the clock, as is usually the case after the August recess. By the end of the month, lawmakers must extend government funding, likely through a short-term spending bill, a CR, or deal with a pre-election day government shutdown. In an election year, nothing comes easy, especially when you talk about spending levels, taxes, policy proposals, and the unknowns that can upend delicate negotiations. Add to that funding request for Ukraine and COVID, plus a same-sex marriage debate that should get wrapped into a must-pass piece of legislation. My colleague covering Capitol Hill, Fox News congressional correspondent Chet Pergram, tees up the debates ahead. And you know what's interesting about this is that uh, it's just not the fact that they would do it. It's what else might be in this bill. That's key. The other factor is how long they would do the bill for. Now, you might say, well, why is that important? Uh, they're probably not going to work out all of the fiscal bills for this fiscal year uh, going into, you know, starting fiscal year 2022, which starts October 1st. We expect them to do an interim spending bill just to keep the lights on. Do they do it for a few days because they think a broader bill is within reach? That's not out of the question. Or if they have to really punt, and, and this is usually the rhythm we see on Capitol Hill here, do they go until late November, early December? Or do they propel this all the way over to the new Congress, say, you know, February or March? Well, think about this. The House is definitely in play. There is a very high probability that the House will flip, even with a smaller Republican majority. The Senate is anybody's guess. That is a pure jump ball right now. So if Democrats say, OK, we're probably not going to be in control of at least one 
uh, of the two houses of Congress. We need to make sure that our spending priorities are reflected for as long as possible. Right. Now, you might remember last year, you know, Democrats had the House, the Senate and the White House. They did not pass what turned out to be the spending package for fiscal year 2021 until March of this past year. So six months after the deadline. And so you were running the government still on Trump era bills. These were Trump era spending priorities. So if you have the Senate, the House and the White House, you want to affect your policy priorities. So Democrats, you know, they got a late start on this. No, you know, some some of the fault was their own, frankly, among other things. But so this is why this could go longer into next year if that's what they want and if they can get the votes for that, because then they can continue to you know spend Democratic dollars in the way they think it should be spent rather than Republican dollars, maybe which they would agree to, you know, at the very end of the year if they did a shorter bill. The the flip side of that, though, is that Republicans may say, listen, we're going to support something very short because if we win back control of Congress, the, the House, maybe even the Senate. We'll have an awful lot more influence on on spending levels. So there's not a lot of incentive here for Republicans to to agree to some long term spending bill right now, is there? It it depends on what both sides get. Uh, There are certain things that Republicans are going to want in this. Maybe if that is the A1 ask of Republicans, a shorter spending bill and Democrats say, great, then you have to take um, same sex marriage in the bill. Right. Uh, You see, so this is other things. Yeah. Yeah. This is the horse trading that's going on here. And and so it just depends which side says this is what we have to have. And we don't know that yet. You mentioned same sex marriage. I want to talk about that because that is an interesting component uh, that we generally don't think about in the context of a spending bill. So I want to get to that. But first, let's talk about what the administration wants. The administration has long sought additional funding uh, for the pandemic. Um, That has been stalled. Uh, Republicans mostly have said, listen, it's time to move beyond this. Um, The type of funding that was needed at the early days of the pandemic is not needed now. You have the administration who has said, listen, we've had to stop free testing. There are other components to our response plan that are going unfunded. There is now a new rollout of booster shots that are supposed to be uh, sort of annual. Uh, That's going to take money if they continue to be free for Americans. Is there any chance that additional covid dollars gets into a short term bill? Again, this is going to be part of the negotiation. Uh, Look at this. You know, Republicans balked at doing a unilateral bill for some COVID money, about $10 billion back Mm -hmm. in the spring. Democrats, because of problems on their own. $10 billion was was a lot less than that was what was 21 billion. Yeah, that's what the White House wanted. Yeah, the White House wanted 21 billion. Democrats in Congress sort of came down to 10 billion. Right. And Senator Patrick Leahy from Vermont, uh, the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, he has indicated and released a bill at the end of July, $21 billion. And and some of this would uh, just not deal with American needs. We're Mm -hmm. talking about uh, vaccines and therapeutics and tests and so on. But this would also, you know, account for some global stuff because, you know, just because you put out the fire here or limited the fire here with COVID, if you're not addressing it overseas, you got a real problem. Look at where all these variants have come from. You know, that's that's one of the main issues. Now, start here. That said, you know, Republicans have said, and I interviewed Tom Cole, who is a Republican from Oklahoma. Uh, He is the ranking Republican on the Labor Health Appropriations Subcommittee. 
And he said, we are going to insist, and this is one of the things that we do know, that the money be spent. We don't oppose spending the money, but it's not new money. It is reprogrammed, mm -hmm. unused coronavirus dollars. So is that the main ask? They say, OK, right. great. We will take $21 billion and we will have it offset because we'll take money from someplace else in because these COVID say, coffers. Yeah. And Democrats we, then say, spent... great, we'll fund the, fund the government till March. Yeah. You know, again, that's the horse trading that's going to go on. Republicans, listen, we've spent, a, a, I think it's close to a trillion dollars. In, in pandemic response, that money has not all gone out the door. Some of it doesn't need to go out the way it was initially designed to go out. Right. Right. And exactly. The other question is we expect uh, the White House to put forward another uh, request for Ukraine assistance. Now, Chad, that has been pretty bipartisan up to this point. Is that appetite waning? Uh, it's hard to say because, you know, we're not in those, you know, early days of the war where you had uh, Vladimir Zelensky beaming in to speak, uh, you know, to all but a joint you know, session of Congress, frankly, a joint meeting of Congress. Uh, I mean, that was significant back in March, you know, right after the war started. You've had an awful lot of lawmakers kind of go, you know, it was a big deal when initially members were showing up. You know, just how safe was it? You know, Nancy Pelosi went. Mm -hmm. There were some other Republicans at one point who went to the border and tried to get in. There was Steve Daines, Republican from Montana, who went in, uh, along with Victoria Sparks, who, Sparks, who of course, is a, is, is a native Ukraine. of Ukraine. But now you've had people showing up all the time. And <laughs> Even, you know, even Liz Truss, the new British prime minister, yeah. uh, has said that, you know, she intends to go at some point. You know, so this is like a thing to do now. Go I to mean, Ukraine. So does that and, mean and so, then that yeah. it's harder to sell like the need than if you're a lawmaker in the U.S. and you're looking at inflation, you're looking at gas prices. Is it harder to say, listen, we need to continue to spend billions of dollars at a time? to keep the weapons flowing to the Ukrainian military. And and what is very concerning, if you are somebody who is an advocate for Ukraine here, and I would put Mitch McConnell, the minority mm -hmm. leader in that camp, is that you yeah. start to have these uh, very conservative right wing members who say, why are we helping Ukraine? Mm -hmm. You have some who are even more on a conspiratorial you know, viewpoint who say, you know, that this is something that, you know, maybe we should give more deference to Russia in all this and that, you know, some of this has all been cooked up and Ukraine is crooked and it's somehow tied back to Hunter Biden. You know, there's that whole narrative that exists in American politics right now. Well, and you've and got so, some progressives, too, who are growing mm -hmm. uncomfortable with the funding, aren't you? Naturally. And, and because and, and you know, that, that's always what's funny about foreign policy. I've always joked that foreign policy, generally the right and the left on foreign policy are so close to each other that if they turn around, they can shake hands. That's sometimes how these debates play out. Right. And the idea is that, they, you know, it stops at the water's edge here, right. you know, but but that's not the case anymore. So the more money they can get, you know, sooner. And this is where Mitch McConnell and maybe to some degree, Kevin McCarthy and some others say, we realize that the, the Senate may flip and we might have control, which is what they want, of course. The House might flip, but that's going to be real hard to move that money next Congress. So maybe it's easier to move it now. And maybe that's another reason why they would want to punt, you know, deeper into, say, February or March, which is counterintuitive. You know, there's a there's a lot of multi-level chess going on here right now. Let's. Let's finish with what you brought up, same-sex marriage, because the House, before the August recess, passed a, a law, a bill that would essentially codify the Obergefell 
uh, decision. Uh, obviously, in the aftermath of, of the Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade, you have Democrats who have said we need to shore up these uh, Supreme Court precedents in law so they can't be overturned. Uh, so they have passed in the House this bill that would uh, basically uh, m m allow at the federal level same-sex marriage. Um, the Senate has been sort of taking this up delicately, right? There's been a lot of conversations over the recess uh, about whether or not they can find 10 Republican supporters for this. Uh, it, it sounded like before the recess, Chad, they were pretty close to that number. And Republican Senator from North Carolina, Tom Tillis, has indicated that they thought they might be able to, to do that. Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat mm -hmm. from Wisconsin, has kind of been leading this effort here so far. So that's so that's important you know, to try to get that across. But can they get those 10? Now, that said, uh, you know, it's an election year. If you have you know Republicans who are unwilling to go there, that's a problem. Susan Collins of Maine, Republican, who has been a supporter of this effort, has indicated that they would view it as a failure if they didn't do it. Maybe, again, part of these negotiations to say they put this in, you know, the, the spending bill, because that's how they get 60 votes, because you're not going to shut down the government over that necessarily. I mean, some might, but, you know, yeah. that, that generally I mean, is not thought. It also takes it off the table. I mean, I, there's some Republicans who have sort of indicated that it might be best to have this off the table. Yes, exactly. And this is because, you know, Republicans are getting blowback by some of the things that were said by some of the conservative justices, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in particular, Clarence Thomas, right. that maybe they should revisit things like same sex marriage, the, yeah. you know, decision, you know, from from Ohio from a few years ago. That's that's very important um, because Republicans realize that there is a vulnerability on that issue. It's, you know, th th they do get a lot of political capital and people can judge the morality of this uh, sure. going around and and making fun of people in bathrooms and what the schools are doing well, and you know try, you know there, there's been a lot of that the politics that, on just same-sex yes, marriage alone yes, have changed exactly. so much over just the last 10 years chad right and the other thing though too is just the fact that this was on the table shows two things as well jared did it change that quickly i remember you know it, it was in 2004 when Karl Rove was special assistant to the president, mm -hmm. and he made sure that in all of the swing states for President George uh, W. Bush, that they got on the ballot in Ohio and other places mm -hmm. an issue barring gay marriage. And so that because got people was, to the polls. It was a and turnout it helped. thing. It was, it was a turnout. The, let's a driver. the conservative Exactly. Base. Yeah. Exactly. So people think that... So, but but but, but hear, hear me out here for a second. Yes, but that's what people thought that it went that way for a, for a while, and that, that you know things changed overnight. There are people in political science now who have started to look at this and say, did we misjudge where the public was? Did they misread it? Because it's as you know, it's rare for things that you know kind of radioactive to change that quickly. So did it truly change that quickly? That's unclear. Um, you know, or did some people just kind of hold their you know, tongue for a long time? I don't know. But you're but you're right that Republicans sense of vulnerability on this issue because they say, OK, it's one thing for the court to have ruled on abortion. You know, that's not working out politically great for Republicans right now. This is why you've seen, you know, registration among, you know, pro-choice voters in Pennsylvania and Kansas go through the, the sky, frankly. So if you hit them on this, then that becomes another issue. And it also means that Republicans are not talking about what if they're talking about same sex marriage and Democrats are able to light them up on this. Mm -hmm. They're not talking about the economy and inflation yes. and gas prices. And that's a problem for the GOP. 
just procedurally, the reason that they would add this to the CR and not do it standalone is just a matter of time, a standalone it, bill in the Senate. It could be because it takes lot. about two weeks. Yeah, yeah, it takes about two weeks to get something through. But remember, the Senate, at least schedule wise, is supposed to be in through, you know, about the 20th, 21st of October. We'll you know, see. And, 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 you know, and I have seen this work a, a myriad of different ways over the years, Jared, about they're in session right up to, to the election. I've seen them get out of Dodge in late September, you know, and that's it. Call it a call it a, a year, frankly. Um, and nobody has really demonstrated to me ever. And I asked somebody learned about this a few days ago. I said, is there any empirical evidence that when they get out early and people go back home and they campaign, does it help one party or the other? And there's no there's no real you know literature on this, frankly. I will say, though, that most politicians will tell you that there is no substitute for going home in person, going to luncheons and mm -hmm. town meetings and rotary clubs and fairs and shaking hands with people and all that. There is no substitute for that campaigning just days before an election. And we will uh, obviously have a lot to talk about as that election uh, is really close now, about uh, two, less than two months away, Chad. So a, a lot on the, the table for Congress between now and then. Uh, it's nice to have them back. I hope you enjoyed your uh, August recess. And now we all get back to work. What August recess? We were here for a while, weren't we? <laughs> and and we had one of the biggest we had one of the biggest stories, the Mar-a-Lago story right, right. every year. Yes. <laughs> you warned me. You warned me. All right, Chad, we'll talk soon. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, Kevin Cork reflects on the 9-11 anniversary from here in Washington. And if you haven't seen them yet, you soon will election ads. Jessica Rosenthal explores how effective they actually are. Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.